1: Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Not the Brexit I wanted. That's what the next boss Simon Wolfson said about the labour shortages afflicting the UK. This is what he told the BBC. I think in respect of immigration, it's definitely not the Brexit um, that I wanted, or indeed many of people who voted to Brexit, but more importantly, the vast majority of the country. And we have to remember, you know, we're all stuck in this Brexit argument, we have to remember that what post-Brexit Britain looks like is not the preserve of those people who voted Brexit. It's, the, it's for all of us to decide. And when you look at the majority of people in Britain, I think they have a very pragmatic view to immigration. Yes, control it where it's damaging to, the, to society, but let people in who can contribute. Lord Wolfson there, speaking to the BBC on the 10th of November. Where are those shortages most acute? How do we decide who can contribute? And will the coming recession change things again? And this week, it emerged that net migration rose to half a million last year. What do we know about the jobs these people are getting? With me to help answer these questions is Madeline Sumption, who's an expert on labour migration. She's the director of the Migration Observatory in Oxford and a member of the Migration Advisory Committee, which advises the government on the subject. Welcome to the bunker, Madeleine. Thank you for having me. So there are about 1.3 million job vacancies in the UK at the moment. And it may be dropping a bit in the last month or two, but it's still extremely high. At the beginning of the pandemic, just for comparison, there were only around 329,000. What's driving these shortages? I think this is quite an unusual period and there are a few different things
2: going on. So part of it is just the, the, the quirks of the post-pandemic labour market. You had this period when a lot of people were laid off and then as the economy recovered, a lot of people were rehired. But there's also been an increase in inactivity, particularly among some older workers who have left the labour market entirely. So that's created you know, pressure on employers trying to hire. At the same time, and this you know depends a lot on which industries you're looking at, there are some of the industries where we're seeing shortages have longer-term problems creating sufficiently attractive jobs to get workers to do them. And so some of the areas where there have been high profile stories, like for example, HGV drivers or baggage handlers, care works in particular, these are all jobs where people have felt that you know the pay or the conditions just haven't been enough to attract them in. And then finally, on top of all that, of course, we've had a change in the immigration system. So the end of free movement at the beginning of last year meant that we didn't have as many EU workers coming in under free movement rules to fill some of those jobs. And I think in the past, the availability of of workers from EU countries had in some ways papered over some of the, the underlying problems that employers would otherwise have faced attracting people into into low-wage work in, in the UK. And so the end of free movement sort of exacerbated some of those challenges.
1: And in fact, at the Migration Observatory, you found recently that there were fewer EU citizens in the UK than were expected when the census was taken last year, suggesting that quite a lot had left. Is that right?
2: Yes, we don't know exactly when people left. There had been some speculation. We saw newspaper headlines along the lines of, you know, there are actually 6 million EU citizens in the UK and I think those were always likely to be too high. That was based on the number of people who had registered for the EU settlement scheme, which EU citizens needed to do if they wanted to stay here after Brexit. In practice, a lot of the people who registered for the scheme, we now think, based on the census results, were only here temporarily. Some in some cases, maybe these were people who only stayed for a few weeks because there wasn't any limit, there wasn't any rule about how long you had to have been here to apply for that scheme. Sort of stepping back from all that, the, the basic picture is that EU migration appears to be pretty low at the moment. And, you know, the Office of National Statistics is estimating that there's actually slight, slightly negative net migration of EU citizens. So slightly more people leaving than arriving, which makes sense, given that we have a, now a much more restrictive immigration system for EU citizens than we
1: had in the past. You mentioned baggage handlers and lorry drivers. Where are the other areas where shortages are really acute?
2: One of the interesting things about the current situation is that actually a lot of the labor shortages seem to be generalized across the labor market so it's not just that there is you know a few specific areas where there are problems employers are facing shortages in, in a lot of industries you know, there are a lot of vacancies in in retail and hospitality at, at the moment we're also seeing vacancies in the NHS particularly in London you know there are significant difficulties that NHS employers have had recruiting nurses and in, in particular, there are shortages in the, in the care sector, you know, certain occupations in construction as well. We've seen reports of, of employers struggling to recruit there. So I, I think it's sort of generalised really across the,
1: the labour market. But is this right across the country as well?
2: It's quite difficult to get a really fine-grained picture of where the shortages are across the country. In the case of the NHS, we have good data on vacancies that have showed, you know, for, as I mentioned, for nurses, particular problems in, in London. But it's actually pretty hard to get a really good regional view of exactly where the the shortages are, just because the data aren't really strong enough, unfortunately.
1: So because these are, as you say, these jobs, these shortages are all across the economy, is it hard to work out what is putting people off from the jobs I mean, normally you'd assume that it might be low wages or it might be work that's difficult, arduous, that someone doesn't want to do in the care sector, for example. But is it possible to generalise at all about that?
2: I think the the story that you get often depends a a lot on the particular occupation that you're looking at. So in some cases, it's pay. And I think social care is a good example of that. well, in social care, it's a a combination of pay and conditions that these are people often working on the minimum wage, doing a job that is much more difficult than other minimum wage jobs, for example, in, in retail or hospitality. And a lot of people just feel that they're not willing to do it for the same wage that they could get down the road, doing a much less stressful job. There are other cases whether you know there are jobs that people do want to do, but it takes quite a long time to train for them, and so if you look at some of the issues in the NHS, for example, it's a combination of often insufficient retention of the people who are, are currently there, so nurses, for example, leaving the workforce, and then you know the pipeline of people being trained to enter the workforce not being sufficient. And if you decide, as in fact, the government has done over the past few years that they want to significantly increase recruitment of a group like nurses. You can't just magic up nurses overnight because it takes a few years for them to to be trained. And that's why we sometimes see immigration being proposed as a, a solution to shortages in the short run because it takes people a while to acquire particular skills.
1: And in fact, one of the things the Migration Advisory Committee does, doesn't it, is draw up a list of shortage occupations where it is easier to bring people in from abroad. So the NHS and care sector have been trying to recruit from outside the EU. Which countries are they looking to? Well, if you
2: look at the people who've been coming into the NHS, the big three countries are India, the Philippines, and Nigeria. They're not necessarily going out and actively recruiting um, in all of those places. In fact, Nigeria is on a red list of countries that where there shouldn't be active international recruitment of, of health professionals because of the shortages they have in their own health workforce. But there's nothing to stop Nigerian citizens from applying to jobs advertised on the NHS Jobs website and so and so it's it's been a major country of origin for that reason so should we be uncomfortable about this
1: are we are we being unethical in the way that we are trying to in, in fact recruiting people from countries that may need these health workers more
2: i think it's the, the ethics of international recruitment particularly of health workers is is really difficult in the sense that you can say so the current policy position effectively is to say you know we're not going to ban the NHS from employing people from Nigeria, but they shouldn't go and recruit there actively. Now, in an age where it's very easy for people to find information on the internet, that's actually not much of a barrier for Nigerians, say, from being recruited. The challenge, I think, is that from the individual perspective, you you could make an ethical argument in the other direction, right? And say, well, it's it's unethical to discriminate against people if i'm someone from nigeria and i'm i want to move abroad do i have less right to do that than someone from the philippines or india where there is less concern about about international recruitment of of health professionals. So I think there's a sort of a trade-off between what would seem desirable like at the aggregate level, which is that, you know, it, it's not necessarily a good idea for there to be mass recruitment of health professionals from a country like Nigeria, and then what's fair to the individuals who who want to move. I should say, you know, it, the picture is very different for different countries. And in the Philippines, the Philippines actually traditionally has been quite comfortable sending health professionals abroad and has had a sort of explicit strategy of exporting skilled professionals, including including nurses. So it's it's not that all countries are trying to prevent recruitment of their health professionals, although of course, you know, many would would like to see lower levels of people leaving.
1: It is quite difficult in this country to get onto a training course, to get onto a medical degree, and there are quotas for how many people can go. Is there not a case for training more doctors and nurses in this country? I think, yes, there is a case
2: for that. The trade-off, you know, from a purely mercenary perspective, the UK benefits a lot from bringing in people that it didn't have to pay to train. Now, obviously, as we've discussed, that's not always good for the countries that they left, although, you know, it's not, you know, some countries are aren't comfortable with emigration with of health professionals. So, you know, there are clearly benefits economically for the UK of being able to bring people in and it helps to manage the sort of ups and downs in the number of, of people who are, are needed and who the NHS wants to recruit, but of course, you know, there's no reason. I think there are plenty of people who want to do, particularly looking at nurses and and doctors. The, 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 situation is difficult, is different for care workers. But looking at sort of health professionals and jobs in the NHS, there are plenty of people who want to do these these jobs. And so it, it's feasible, if a more expensive option, to recruit. And I think in some ways it comes down to a sort of an ethical question and a question about, you know, how much we're willing to to spend on training, including kind of supporting people through their training, things like bursaries to help people with living costs while they train.
1: Because on the face of it, it seems strange. I mean, I imagine universities are happy to provide these courses and to increase those, and it feels strange that the government wouldn't make a big effort to train more people in this country on that basis.
2: Yeah, the pipeline of training is is complicated, and some it's because there have to be enough places for the initial training, and then you need clinical placements that people do as they're you know in the later stages of, of their training, and and depending on the the types of workers you're looking at, um, so sometimes the bottlenecks are at, at different places. Overall, I think though there has been, if you look at the sort of you know major reports and reviews of the health workforce that have been done over the last few years, one of the consistent criticisms has been that the government. Hasn't done enough to plan the workforce appropriately. What's interesting about the health workforce—that's obviously very different from, say, you know, engineers or techies—is that the government sort of controls most of that, labor, you know, they control the labour market, they decide how much people are getting paid when they're in jobs. And there's, they also have a really big influence over the training system. So it's one area where actually, you probably could have some quite coherent workforce planning to kind of, you know, figure out exactly how you're going to produce the number of, of people that, that you want. And I know that that has been a, a significant criticism of the, the policy system, that, that that planning hasn't always been in place.
1: We're going into recession right now, it seems. And generally what happens during a recession is the number of job vacancies in the private sector falls, unemployment rises. Do you think that may ease some of the pressure when it comes to public services trying to recruit?
2: Well, we may see, obviously, if we see an increase in unemployment and lower vacancies, then that might make life easier for employers across the labour market as a whole to to find workers. You might see some of the the shortages ease off. In fact, we would expect that. I think one of the challenges for public services in particular is is pay. And what we've seen in the last few months is that the gap between public and private sector pay has increased you know, in a context of a very high inflation, it's not necessarily that, you know, there there has been some upward pressure on on wages, even if the real value of people's uh, pay packets are not increasing. So I, I think that does create a challenge for public services in particular, if you take something like social care, where people are often working on the minimum wage or just very slightly above it. The current economic environment, including a um, sort of widening gap between public and, and, and private sector pay, could actually make things more challenging for care employers because it's, it's, it's going to be difficult. They don't have a lot of leeway to increase the pay to their workers because pay is, low pay is effectively baked into the system by policy. And and by the fact that when local authorities commission care, it's commissioned effectively on the expectation that a lot of those workers will be paid the minimum wage.
1: We're going to be seeing more strikes in the public sector, probably, in the next few months. We don't know yet whether the government will be able to reach a settlement with the nurses, for example, but they're asking for a pay rise of just over 15%, which is really very high. How much does the NHS depend on recruiting people from abroad in order to keep wages down? I think, I mean, it's really difficult in any part of the
2: the labour market to work out Exactly what impact immigration has on wages. Most of the research that has been conducted over the past couple of decades has suggested that actually the impact of immigration on wages is surprisingly small. You know, a lot of the estimates effectively come out pretty close to zero. Now, that's across the labor market as a whole, and most of those people will be in the private sector. In the NHS, it was very difficult to speculate about this, right? Because these are not private sector labour markets. And so the question effectively is, you know, is the availability of workers from overseas as a, you know, as a safety valve when they can't recruit, is that one of the factors that has, you know, discouraged the government from agreeing to higher pay increases? And I, I don't know the answer to that. I think, you know, if, if it's there, if it has an impact, it would be a, quite an indirect one. And it sort of comes down to, you know, the incentives of the the people making those
1: decisions. So is there an argument for having a more liberal immigration policy and allowing more people to come and work in this country?
2: So there, there are a couple of different options that the government has. They could simply just wait it out and say, you know, the current system prioritizes skilled people. That's how we want it, and in the long run, or even just in the medium term, over maybe two or three years, actually some of these shortages will will resolve themselves. Employers will adjust to the new system. Some sectors might grow a little bit more slowly than they otherwise would have done, and we're not going to have this number of vacancies forever. That's one coherent position. On the other side of the spectrum, if they wanted to adjust the system and and liberalise work visas, particularly in those low wage jobs that aren't currently eligible for the immigration system, that would make life easier for employers in, in the short run, for sure. The challenge for the government is that it also has some drawbacks, one of which is uh, is exploitation, which is that particularly when you're looking at low-wage jobs where the risks of exploitation are higher, people who come in on low-wage work visas often will be tied to a particular employer, particularly if, if the system is designed to target specific shortages, whether of you know, baggage handlers or, or care workers or, or what have you. And that means that if they're being exploited by their employer, or it's not a good job, it makes it much more difficult for them to leave. And so I think there's a real trade-off between the desire to try and make life a little bit easier for employers and and bring people in to help alleviate the labour shortages and the fact that the visas that do this typically tie people to their employers. And it's really, really difficult to have enough monitoring to prevent exploitation.
1: We've seen a fall, likely fall, as you say, in people coming to Britain to work from the EU. Where in recent in the last couple of years since brexit, have we seen a rise? Where are more people coming from? yeah, I think what's really interesting about this debate about labor
2: shortages is that there's been a lot of focus on the fall in EU workers who were doing uh, jobs like you know they were overrepresented in, in low wage jobs in particular, things like retail hospitality, some kinds of manufacturing but at the same time, and that seems to have exacerbated shortages at the same time as actually immigration overall is not that low because of rising numbers of non-EU citizens coming in. Now, a lot of those non-EU citizens are, are students who won't necessarily be working. Some of them may work part-time on the side of their, their studies. But um, if you look specifically at, at the workers, you have effectively you have different bits of the labour market. So you have people coming into seasonal work, primarily in, in agriculture. And there it was the major country of origin actually was Ukraine for people coming in on, on seasonal work visas. And then with the war, you know, for obvious reasons, recruitment of men in particular in Ukraine became more difficult. and the recruiters diversified, including to, to some kind of other non-EU, Eastern European and Central Asian countries. On the other end of the spectrum when, when it comes to skilled work visas, India again, is the top country of origin. But the distribution, if you look at sort of what types of jobs on average, people who are coming in from non-EU countries on work visas are doing. They're quite different from the jobs that EU citizens had previously been doing. And this is why it's possible to have a situation where we both have labour shortages that appear to have been exacerbated by the end of free movement but also rising work-related immigration, primarily into different types of jobs.
1: So finally, what do we know about where people who've arrived from Ukraine are working? Well, this is
2: a really important question, actually, because there have been quite a few uh, people from Ukraine that we've granted almost 200,000 visas to to Ukrainians. And so in theory, people from Ukraine might be able to do some of the types of jobs that were previously done by by EU citizens and maybe alleviate some of the labour shortages. Now, many of them they are not able to enter the labor market. Some of them are um, mothers with no partner present and carrying responsibilities. But from the, the data that was collected over the summer suggested that just under half of adults were in work. And that hospitality was one of the most common sectors for them to be working in, which does suggest that there's at least some limited scope for, for Ukrainian workers to replace some of the workforce that might previously have come from European countries.
1: Madeline, that was fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us you're welcome when a recession is coming you have to make difficult choices about what you can afford if you feel you can support the bunker to keep making podcasts we'd be delighted supporter tiers start at £3 a month I'm Ros Taylor thanks for listening the bunker daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor the producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The Bunker
0: is a Podmasters production.